This is The Fourth Revolution by Bartel, a podcast on the technology driving change in manufacturing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Fourth Revolution, brought to you by Bartel. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. When we think of the age of automation and manufacturing that we're in today, it can seem like running a quote-unquote lean operation is a top and standardized priority. But what does lean really look like when everyone already thinks they're running lean? Especially with the prevailing mentality of corporate growth having been, for the last several decades, watch stock prices, drive quarterly earnings, and please your shareholders. Does that mentality really limit itself to operating in a holistic, lean fashion? So today's guest argues that this mindset doesn't encourage efficiency, waste reduction, or quality products at all, and that lean has more or less lost its meaning, and that we need to redefine what it means to work lean. Today, we're looking at a tried-and-true recipe for manufacturing and automation success, one that is incredibly applicable today that originated in Japan's automobile industry. So I'm pleased to welcome Steve Darderis. He's Director of Continuous Improvement for Hillrom, and he's breaking down and analyzing the usefulness of the Toyota production system. Steve, welcome. Great to have you on. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. A lot of interesting history and um, you know, a lot of applicable strategies, methodologies, and mindset changes for the manufacturing industry as a whole. Sure. Um, so just to start off, for context, uh, the Toyota Production System, or TPS, for folks in our audience that might not know, was conceived by uh, Sakichi Toyota and Kichiro Toyota based out of Japan, and was initially a response to solving issues of waste and lack of efficiency in a broader production system. So, Steve, if you don't mind, could you start by defining the core tenets of the Toyota production system, and if possible, give a little history on its implementation, just just a brief sure. rundown. Yeah, sure. So if we do a little history, you've done your, your homework on that. If we go back and, and document where the Toyota production system came from, uh, it was actually, if you think uh, back to World War II, uh, around the concept of uh, training within industry that was driven out of the United States in the 50s and the, er, and the 40s and the 50s, we, we, we generated a lot of the ideas around the Toyota production system to win the war. Uh, if we think about Rosie the Riveter and the whole idea of the uh, homemaker going into the plant and you know making armament for tanks, that whole idea was really the genesis of the, the, the concepts or the tenets of the Toyota production system. And the U.S. government actually sent Douglas MacArthur to, Toy to Japan after the war to uh, deploy training within industry in Japan. And they have, for the first companies they went to were the uh, radio companies, Panasonic, Sony, uh, to get communications going. And then it, it dwarfed, and then it basically rolled into the, man the manufacturing companies, and Toyota picked it up and took it from there. So, so we've had our eyes on the Japanese approach to efficient manufacturing for, <laughs> for a while now. Correct. Love it. Yeah. And so if we think about uh, as Toyota went, uh, as Toyota took the, the concepts of, you know, uh, what we had uh, training within industry, the learnings from Deming, 
uh, Edward Deming, who had lots of ideas around quality and building quality in. Uh, in the 70s, we get to this point in, uh, in America where we have the oil crisis. And if you think about the vehicles that uh, the United States uh, auto manufacturers were making in the 70s, you know, they were large vehicles, uh, you know, 20 feet long, uh, maybe 10 miles of the gallon, these big Impalas. And Toyota is developing the Corolla. Um, that is getting lots of gas mileage, high gas mileage. And it was really their first production car, uh, mass production car. So that was that really was probably the point in time where lean changed uh, because the automotive industry in the U.S. said, hey, we need to find out what, what did Toyota do to, to go from where they were, nothing, to now a competitor. So that's really when lean brings, you know, comes to America in the in the 80s. So how did this uh, Toyota production system, uh, their their core methodology, get defined? Uh, because I know when you look up a diagram yeah. of the Toyota production system, it's a nice looking, you know, kind of house structure, yeah. two sure. main pillars, a nice foundation. Uh, yeah. Could you break down what each of those pieces are and how they fit into that broader system? Yeah. So, you know, it's really around people. So the first thing I would say is around, you know, building automation with people in mind. So if you talk, automation uh, is a word, a kind of a weird word that people have used, the whole idea of Jidoka, right? Building, um, building technology from the perspective of the person that's using the automation, as opposed to creating automation that's, uh, that does all the work, you need to have a human element in the automation. So there's a human touch to the automation. And then the whole idea of just in time, only making what you need when you need it um, and, and that mentality. So it's really built around people and then only building uh, what you need when you need it. And if you look at the base of it, which is something that you won't find in many other houses, and I've been around operating systems for 20 years, um, in their house on the bottom, they have a term called uh, hijunka, which is just level loading or level leveling the demand. And that is really at their foundation, which uh, as I've taught a lot of these classes and been around a lot of people, uh, they when, I, when they start learning the concepts of Toyota production system, when we start talking about level loading and leveling things out, um, when they go back and look at the, the house of Toyota, they're like, oh, look, there's this is actually a foundational element to their house. So that's really what everything's built on is level. You know, everything's level. And and then building a house, obviously, you'd want it to be level. But very few operating systems that you'll see in the West have level loading built into the foundation of their, their operating system. I think that goes to how you introduce the whole idea around public companies, stock prices, uh, making the quarter, making the number, making the year. The, those behaviors are absolutely not level. So those those things actually create unlevelness. So that's kind of the the tenants that I would how I would describe them. How did implementing those tenants transform the Toyota Motor Corporation, and how did it take those to begin to lay out a path for global competition with American and European car manufacturers that were also finding their stride? Yeah. So I, I think the fun, and and as I've learned, you know, and spent more time in manufacturing, as I uh, and you'll meet somebody who says, "Oh yeah, I worked at um, you know, I worked at uh, 
Delphi or I've worked at GM or I've worked at Ford, uh, what, what we find is not a lot of those people were around when their moving line or their level loadedness of the Ford factory or the Chevy factory, they weren't there when they went from batch and queue to level. So it's hard to find people that actually know what that journey looks like. Um, and I think that's really the core of what Toyota did, right? By level leveling it out and leveling out production, they were able to build a factory in uh, Georgetown, Kentucky that had multiple multiple cars on the line, um, different models on the same line. And that that and if we go back in the history, if we finish up the history around 1984 when they merged, uh, they did a joint venture with GM uh, GM in. Um, Fremont, California, where the Tesla is made now, which is kind of ironic, um, that they worked with GM to teach those concepts of uh, the Toyota production system of, you know, mixed model lines, putting different cars with different, you know, building cars that you would normally not put together on the same line. So not only are you level, you're now able to add mixed models into that idea. And I think that's really the as I've been around the businesses I've been recently is most of our businesses in the United States are uh, very high mix and very low volume. And they'll automatically say, well, we don't build cars. Those are mass production. Um, so those concepts don't work. Uh, and I would argue that the, the Toyota production system was actually, I built for uh, a high mix, low volume environment and, and doing mixed models. Now that we are looking back at, you know, the, the origins of the system and have seen it used in manufacturing now for decades. What were some of the broader lessons in efficiency and in waste reduction and value-focused manufacturing that were taken from uh, the TPS? Yeah, so uh, identification of the waste. So uh, you'll see acronyms, uh, lots of acronyms around um, downtime or Tim Woods, the whole idea of transportation, you know, waste, uh, you know, wasted of transportation. Uh, when I move, when I'm moving things around, um, if I'm over, overproducing, uh, the whole idea of overproducing, uh, overprocessing, um, you know, doing things I don't need, uh, the customer doesn't need to have, uh, in the world I used to work in, in aerospace, you know, polishing things to, uh, a, a finish that's very high, uh, looks really nice, but when they start the engine of the plane, it automatically gets uh, uh, changes right away. So is it, you know, we're over-processing. Uh, waiting. Um, how do we take care of people's skills? How do we use people's heads to um, take care of and find opportunities, right? Um, you know, defects, scrap, rework, all those ideas. So uh, those would be the, the tenants or the pr key principles that we're trying to go after in lean are all those wastes. And what we, what we find when we start talking about waste is those wastes exist in our business processes as well. So they exist in, you know, in R&D and in, in, in uh, finance and HR uh, and all those hiring processes and our uh, engineering change requests and our quality processes. So all those same wastes we can also find in the business processes as well. And I think that's really where Toyota, you know, really took off was really taking that into not only the manufacturing, but then driving that through the rest of their business in terms of how they develop products, uh, how they get to market quicker, uh, and, you know, and that whole that whole idea of, of the whole system level change. So that's that's kind of the, the take on, on waste reduction in that 
those concepts. And, you know, they seem like very straightforward and easy to understand concepts. So I can understand why they've become so popular and why they've kind of taken on a life of their own in this idea of running a lean manufacturing process. And when we look at manufacturing today, the idea of lean business models and workflows seem to be embodied by just about everyone. It seems to be the mentality, right? We want to be, we want to be as efficient as possible. Um, you know, we want to retain quality, but cut costs and, and do the most with the least. Um, I know that your take on it is that lean has kind of lost its edge and its meaning and doesn't really embody the core reasons for lean. Uh, Break down that notion and your thoughts on that and what the effectiveness is of not only a lean business model today, but even just calling yourself a lean company. Yeah, sure. So that's, and then I think in the interview notes, we first started communicating uh, the term lean. I've, st- I've actually stopped trying to use the word in my training classes um, because it automatically has that connotation of, uh, well, if I have, if I have lean, then I'm doing something, you know, I'm doing lean uh, or I've done it or it's something we used to do. Um, so that concept kind of gets lost. So uh, I think a lot of companies or a lot of places want to, uh, and and people, some people will say, "Well, is this a um, a Japanese? Uh, is this the way all Japanese companies are? Is this a is this a cultural thing? Meaning, do the people because they're from Japan and we're from you know the West that we think differently? And what we find is just from my research and what I've talked to is there's not uh, this is not a Japanese thing. So not all Japanese companies are lean." Um, but I, one thing that we do know is most Western companies are definitely metric driven. So a lot of companies or a lot of uh, places will say, I don't want to do these lean things unless you can dollarize them first. So I want to return on my investment. So I want to know right up front what money you're going to save me. Like, show me the money. Show me what it's going to look like first. And then I'm going to give you the resources. And what we find is companies that do that right, will probably advance at a slower rate than companies that will spend less time worrying about the return and more time on engaging the workforce to do the right thing. Because, you know, if you do the right thing, uh, it's the old idea of, you know, you do, uh, you, you, if you change your behaviors, the outcomes will come. You don't work, you know, you don't try to achieve something uh, that I want really bad um, by measuring it first, do I just go do it? Uh, I was coached by the Porsche consulting guys for five years. Uh, one of the slides they use in their training, it's the first one I ever saw from Porsche, is a uh, head of lettuce and a scale. And they say, what is lean? Uh, and my experience is a lot of companies will say, all right, well, if I'm, if let's say I'm just going to try to lose weight and I might get on a scale every day, every day I get on the scale and I say, how come I'm not losing weight? I'm on the scale every day looking at it. How come my weight's not changing? Um, and I look at a head of lettuce, I say, okay, well, if I'm going to change my habits and my behaviors, right, my the scale will change. Unfortunately, lean or doing lean things or changing a company into that culture of lean is a lagging measure. And a lot of companies don't want to wait to get those results. They want the results this month. Oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to do a lean event 
this week, that's great. Well, am I going to see it at the end of the month? And it's just not, it's just not the way it works. Um, and some of it has to be a leap of faith. You have to take a little bit of a leap of faith that this is the right thing. And we know from doing, you know, in a lot of companies and, and spending a lot of time with people that companies that just take the, the, the leap are getting the results. And what happens is those companies get the results. The other people see it and they go and talk to them and they're like, what did you do? Oh, we put a lean, this operating system in and we did this lean thing. And they're like, good, we're going to do the same thing. Um, but we have a project mentality and we look at KPIs first. Um, so they kind of stall. So that's, yeah. So that's kind of what happens when you, when you drive those types of behaviors. Interesting. So just as much as it's a methodology and strategy shift, it's also a, a cultural shift within the company. That's, that's basically what you're, what you're saying, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense because honestly, that kind of efficient mindset is one that you need buy-in from. Uh, from all players. And it's not just something that you can force and demand. It's got to be an educational moment for everyone from people on the factory floor to uh, C-suite level executives. Um, how have you found, how do you see that embodied in today's manufacturing industries? Uh, and how do you see the Toyota production system embodying that more than this kind of vague lean term. Yeah. Or yeah. Or a lean initiative or, right. or a, lean, a lean thing, uh, you know, and that's, and I think that get, I think that's what some companies get caught into and they get into this uh, lean initiative, you know, our initiative, we have an inventory initiative. We have a, uh, you know, we have a lean initiative. We have that initiative. So we get, caught up in a lot of these initiatives. And I, and I was lucky enough to work for uh, a company that ha was uh, all the way through the organization. They were driving that cultural change of doing lean at all levels. So, so that's my reference point. And at the time, I didn't really understand it. I was more in you know, learning it and, and really developing my skills in that in that environment, but it was really taken from the top of the company, right? So they, 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 it, the whole idea of lean was at, at the CEO level. Yep. We're doing it. And at the vice president level, yep. And we're doing it and all levels. So there was really no resistance between the levels. Um, because I, I think in, in any company, uh, the guys that are in the middle, the guys and girls that are in the middle of the organization that are stuck, that are caught between the C-suite and the workers, those are always the people that are waiting to find out where we're going. Uh, you know, I hear what the, this guy's saying and I see what they're saying and I'm waiting to see which direction we're going. Uh, when you have an organization that's all in and every at all levels, uh, the idea of doing an improvement or uh, what we would do a kaikaku, which is a, a Japanese word for rapid change or radical change. We, we did 12 major kaikaku events and took um, 200, 300,000 square foot facilities put everything in the parking lot and put it all back in, in a week. And taking those types of leaps of faith really drives the cultural change because you can't go backwards, right? When you take it all out in the parking lot and you put it all back in to connect flow and connect processes, you can never really, the old way is gone. Uh, you can never really go back to the old way. You just got to pick up your boots and go and keep moving forward. Um, I spent a little bit of time with Jim Womack who wrote the book, uh, the machine that changed the world and the, who really brought uh, lean thinking to the United to the United States uh, as a writer? I took spent some time with him, and he was wondering. You know, he wrote the book, and 25 years later, he was wondering why are we that not 
we aren't much more lean than we were 25 years ago. And he was kind of uh, reflecting, you know, why is that? How is that possible? Well, it's because we've done Kaizen. People will hear the word Kaizen. Well, that's, you know, change for the better. But if you continually do changes for the better and you're consistently do, doing that, at some point you might have to do something revolutionary. So he wrote in his uh, Planet Lean blog, you know, Kaikaku versus Kaizen. What, at what point do you keep doing Kaizen? Do you do something revolutionary and do something Kaikaku, like really change something radically? Um, and I think that's where companies are caught right now because we want to de-risk everything. We don't want to take a leap of faith. We're scared because we don't know the outcome. Um, it, where's my return on it? All those same topics that we talked about you know, just, just previously. So I think we get caught in those types of things. I want to go back to the cultural side of this because I think a symptom of why lean maybe doesn't work as often as people want it to is because of that mindset we mentioned earlier, this kind of KPI, ROI, um, metrics only, numbers, numbers, numbers. And look, data and analytics are incredibly important um, for the uh, future of business today. It's how a lot of people can really measure, okay, is the work I'm doing, is the content marketing I'm doing, is the, is the process I'm implementing actually benefiting the company? But I, I think... When your vision is, okay, how is this benefiting the company for the shareholders? How is this benefiting the company for um, folks who own stock in the company? Like that, I, that I think changes what you value and how urgently you're, you're willing to implement this as well as, you know, how much patience you can have right. with a process yeah. like this. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, some context. The CEO roundtable earlier in 2019, uh, I know this is something you know, but um, they filed a redefinition of a corporation's core values and missions, basically saying that instead of just shareholders being a corporation's key constituency, that now, you know, uh, officially stamped into um, into protocol, employees, the environment, suppliers and distributors now hold as much weight for a corporation. And this, was, I think, was kind of, um, you know, a, a big change in language, at least for how large Fortune 500s um, are, are trying to come across, I think, to the rest of the world and also hopefully materially change some of the ways that they approach their business models to um, you know, to to keep other constituencies in mind. So how does something like TPS fit the ideas of investing in all stakeholders, not just your shareholders? Yeah. So and I think in there, you know, when they 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 pull they point out the stakeholders, the shareholders, the suppliers. And I think uh when we look across the company, a lot of the companies, a majority of everything that we manufacture has material in it, and it's uh, it's owned by the su right suppliers. And a lot of the focus that you'll see in uh, that recently, not maybe not even recently, but uh, maybe the last ten years has been around materials. Everything is around materials. Um, and I was able to spend, uh, as I said about Porsche Consulting, I actually was had a chance to spend many years with Porsche. Uh, go to the went to their Leipzig facility, went to their Stuttgart facility, um, and they really are world class in materials. Not only Toyota production system, they implemented the Toyota production system, but they really took it to the next level. So not only are they doing Toyota production system and manufacturing and their business processes, but they they're in the materials. So they're holding at the time that I was visiting them, uh, 0.6 days inventory on 14,000 parts with a four and a half minute tag time. Uh, 
um, and working with their suppliers. The only way you can do that is to work with your suppliers. And I think what happens is companies see that or they hear that or they read about it. And then the first thing they'll do is go after their material. Uh, and we got to go after our materials and our materials. But yet our own factories aren't even producing level or we're not even doing the Toyota production system principles in our own factory yet. But we're running off to our suppliers to fix our suppliers. And the first thing that will happen is our suppliers are going to come in and say, hey, you guys aren't even a good customer because you change your mind because you're telling me you want this one day. And then the next day you're saying, push it out. And you're going, you know, and you're kind of making, and again, we go back to this level loading and this whole level idea. So at Porsche, their real, their model was inside out. Uh, you work from the inside of the cell, you work out to your internal logistics inside your plant, you work to your supermarkets, then you work back to your suppliers. That's how you get to 0.6 days inventory. And I'm not sure there's many shareholders or people that own stock or people that work in a company that wouldn't want their company to be doing 0.6 days turns of inventory um, and, and generating that type of level of cash flow in a you know $18 billion business. So I think there's, but, but we have to be able to show them that, right? They have to see that and believe that that's even possible um, uh, to, to, to go on that journey. So, and, and I think, again, going back to the culture, how do we get to the culture and really changing the culture and, uh, and getting everybody on board to get there? Because you're not going to do that you know, by, staring, by looking at metrics or driving to the metrics. The metrics will change when the culture changes. Uh, any company that's doing it, right, that's what you'll see. Good behaviors drive good results. So, um, yeah, so there, and there's lots of that, lots of stories. And I think we get into lean accounting, and I think that's the other, I think that's the other really big elephant in the room that is uh, seldom addressed is this, uh, this idea around standard costing and absorption and all these variances and how we account for things as opposed to accounting for true cost. What's the true cost to manufacture a product and having things in value streams and doing mixed model lines that way? So, so I think there's a lot of angles there and there's a lot, of, there's a lot there to un, uh, unwrap, um, but I think those are all the areas you kind of have to go, uh, go after. I think you know, it could be easy to accidentally fall in the mental trap that, okay, to go lean and, and change uh, you know, our mindset as leaders of a company um, that you know, really this needs to be a, a bottom-up change that we need to start with um, the employees on the floor, make them understand, and slowly work up from there. And I think a fear could be, and it, you know, it's not that getting buy-in from everyone is bad, but I think a fear could be to achieve lean or to achieve uh, something that maybe resembles TPS, um, a, a leadership team might offload some of that stress or some of those expectations on uh, the workforce, on labor. Um, and that, you know, doesn't necessarily create efficiency, but instead just kind of puts um, metrics pressure on a workforce to deliver more with less. How, how have you found that, you know, companies that really embody TPS um, – can achieve that kind of buy-in and that kind of efficiency without necessarily throwing any one part of the team or the company under the bus, uh, especially when, you know, power dynamics in um, the workforce today are still rather stilted, you know. Uh, so, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts there? 
Yeah. So I think when you get to that whole concept of changing the culture and getting people where, where you have, um, you know, the company needs to make profit. The company has the, 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 you know, the vision to go here. This is what our market is going to look like. This is what our sales are going to be. This is what our costs need to be. And I, and I, where I've seen it successfully done is the, um, the metrics. So a lot of the metrics that we're using are rear facing or they're looking backwards. So, um, I'm reviewing my on-time delivery for the month of January. I'm reviewing it in February. So I'm looking backwards, um, successfully going that way. Uh, and I think that's really the power of the Toyota production system is really looking at those driver measures that drive the right behavior. Um, and, and more times than not, when I have these dialogues around driver measures, that really paralyzes the, the group because that's for some, it might be the first time they've ever really heard that. But we all know what good driver measures are. We all know even in our personal lives, when we do things, when we have kids, we know if we uh, reinforce certain things that we want, we'll get positive behaviors. We also know if we drive certain behaviors, we get bad results. So, and I think that's a real key thing. So if you have a company that's really driving towards driver measures, meaning I know where we're going to go, I'm looking out in front, I'm kind of anticipating where we're going and I can kind of see, and I'm looking at it all the time, looking forward that the rear facing metrics will take care of themselves. And that's again, another leap of faith that leaders have to take is, is being okay with, um, the plant floor or the shop floor or those people that run the middle managers that run those areas to let them have some driver measures that they know will help them drive where they want to go and then have faith that those drivers will drive the right behavior. And if you go through that exercise frequently, you can kind of think about what are the behaviors that is that metric, that driver measure going to do, right? So is that, you know, how oh, I'm driving this, what, what would be the outcome of driving this? What are the negative of things? Are there any, are there any negative outcomes that I would have? Um, so, so I think really leading, leading, and, and there's really a difference between leading indicators. Okay. We could have a leading indicator, but we're really talking about driver measures on the shop floor. And we talk about the Toyota production system. That's probably the, the, the key principle at the root of it is around customer tack time or cust the rate of customer demand. And if we don't build our, our factories around the rate of customer demand, uh, we will never be able to satisfy them. And when you have the rate of customer demand, you also know how many people you need and how many machines you need and what your capital plan looks like and how many quality problems I have. So when you think about good driver measures, the rate of customer demand is king and it would be the number one uh, driver measure. Uh, so in today's heavily automated manufacturing um, workplace and industry, I mean, we're on a podcast called The Fourth Revolution, right? So uh, the, the moniker does reflect the Fourth Industrial <laughs> Revolution, which is what we're in the middle of. Um, IoT, AI, machine learning, and just general integrated connected smart devices um, are powering a lot of industrial machinery today. So how does the Toyota production system affect um, labor, affect the workforce? Sure. And yeah. uh, the place of human touch in today's slowly more automated uh, industrial manufacturing environment. 
Sure. Yeah. So we spent, I spent a lot of time talking about this because that comes in is like, well, if we get a, you know, if I can get this robot or this thing to do this, um, if we don't understand our rate of customer demand, if we don't understand how long it takes to do things, the actual time it takes to do things, what we'll do and what I've seen is we'll buy machinery or we'll put automation in places ahead of uh, manual operations. So we'll justify a machine. We'll put it in place. It'll be before in the beginning process of a manual operation. But we've never really balanced out our manual operation. We don't really have a good handle of that manual operation. We're not really doing many lean things over here. But I did justify this piece of equipment right here and this this thing that has all the fancy bells and whistles and it can connect to everything. And while we spent a lot of money on it, so we better run it. It better be running 24-7. Because that's how the payback, that's how we justified the payback. So I'm going to turn this machine on and it's going to run seven days a week, right? And we're going to run it. But yet the manual process downstream can't keep up because we've never really balanced that out and never really looked at it. So I think companies um, get, uh, you know, they are looking in one area, right? They get singularly focused on, I need to buy a piece of machinery to replace a piece of machinery, as opposed to maybe looking at the whole system and maybe coming up with a solution that fixes the whole system where I might add some machinery here, but I also might need to add it downstream to make sure that the things flow from front to back. Because the customer, the customers in the end, if you're really good at step number one, uh, and you could do that really fast, but if I can't do steps five, six, seven, and eight very quickly, the customer isn't any happier. But I do have a fancy piece of equipment that they can come see to see how great we are. But yet I have this uh, imbalance in my system as a, and maybe we should be looking at the system as a whole as a whole. And a lot of the time I've spent recently around systems thinking and really looking at systems, as a whole, including all those manual operations, including all those machinery operations, including the whole system end to end, what Toyota would call a value stream, um, putting things in value streams and then optimizing the value stream, which is horizontal. Most of our companies are built um, vertically in vertical silos as opposed to horizontal value streams where you could then optimize the value from, you know, incoming, you know, getting something in to getting it to the customer. And if we think in horizontal value streams, and I think that's really probably the key to the Toyota production system, probably overarching everything. So, Steve, uh, you have a storied career of uh, about 15 years working in industries such as corrugated box manufacturing, industrial couplings, aerospace structures, aerospace micro switches and panels, medical devices, uh, more and more and more. I mean, you've really been in many different sides of um, the industrial manufacturing world. How did you apply TPS, the Toyota production system, along the way in all of these different industries? And, you know, just give me a few examples of how it paid off for you. What were some tangible uh, returns on investment? How did culture and mentality and efficiency approve, um, not just, uh, you know, for the sake of the quality of the product, but also for the sake of the well-being of the workforce and the efficiency of the workflow? Yeah. So, and it'll go all the way back. So I was, uh, if I just stepped before I was even in manufacturing, when I tell the story, people are like, how, how can you do all these things in that career? There's no way. They actually have had people actually count the, 
the weeks and say, wait a second, or the years and say, wait a second, you're how old and you did all these things. I'm not sure that the math works. But uh, before I was even in manufacturing, I was selling steel and metal. So I was a sales. I was on the commercial side of the world. Um, when I went to the manufacturing side, it was with my brother and my dad. Um, and my dad is an accountant, old school, classic accounting guy. I'm a sales guy. My brother's an accountant. And we, we started running this uh, sub-fractional horsepower motor company in Watertown, New York. Um, we met a gentleman from uh, Kodak who was working for a government agency that was giving uh, um, consulting services to, do, to help manufacturers. So we were able to get some money, a grant to get him to come in. And he came in and taught us the uh, initial concepts of, hey, this is how one piece flow works. This is how Toyota's production system works. This is how you do a value stream map. And my brother and I uh, went ahead and basically started tearing down walls and started connecting the processes and just went out. And we had our own um, simulation, a real life simulation of being able to apply these principles um, in real life. So the good part, well, the, the, the good part was we were able to do this in real life. The bad part was my dad was an accountant. And so my dad is traditional accounting, thinking standard costing, and this is how it works. And we were blowing all those things up. We were blowing up the work order system. We were connecting these processes. We weren't doing transactions the same way. We were doing them differently. And he came out and was like, you're ruining my, you know, he would come out, you're ruining my company. And what, what we started doing is really leveling out, leveling out the, the work. So we were doing the same amount every week. Um, and then we were doing it every day, the same amount every day, every part, every part, every day, uh, doing the same amount. And in about six weeks, uh, my father stopped coming out. And we were like, where did he go? He, came, he was coming out here every day for six weeks, complaining about how we were ruining his company. And six weeks later, he's gone. Well, what had happened is his cash flow flattened out. What he was doing before was he was building everything in big batches. So he would get orders, he'd get this big, huge order, and he would spend all his resources building this huge order. Everybody would work on this order for two weeks and he would push it through the system. Then he would make one big shipment and then he'd have one big receivable for this huge order, but he wouldn't get paid for 60 days. And then when he got paid, he got this big check, then he would have to dole out all the money to buy all the materials and pay to do all the things he needed to do. What, what happened as we started leveling the plant out, the cash flow flattened out and he was getting the same amount, the same check every week, the same amount every week. And that made it a lot more manageable to be able to organize how we wanted to buy things and pay for things and do, do things. So, so that was a real life example. And that was before I ever even really knew what lean was. I didn't even know the term lean. We just knew Jim Myers from Kodak, who was a consultant who said, Hey, these are some good things to do. We didn't have terminologies. We didn't have tech. We didn't have the the all the the formal tools of lean that I learned when I went to uh, Goodrich uh, in two thousand and eight. So that's a real life example, and that's kind of where my the the beginning knowledge of really applying these tools. And a lot of what I've seen is we have lean people that come into a business and they've read about it, or they went to a, a they were taught it when they were in college. And they've read about it and they've, they've uh, maybe they've done some simulations in school, but they never really saw the real effects of it, how it really can work. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have a real life example. And then when I go, went to Goodrich, I was able to meet uh, Greg Peters, who, that, who was friends with Jim Womack. And that's where we did those 12 Kaikakus, where we 
you know, we would plan for three to six months before a Kaikaku event. At, at the time, we once we got to the, the date, we would take every person in the, in the plant would be involved and we would take every single thing that was in the plant and put it out in the parking lot and put it all back in, uh, in flow and link all the processes together. And there we really saw huge reductions in the days to manufacture from, you know, places where it was taking 45 or 50 days to manufacture an aircraft part down to single digits, you know, four or five days. So huge reductions in days to manufacture, huge inventory reductions, huge uh, square footage, freeing up green space uh, to 20 or 30 percent. So we would start using the idea of a third, a third, a half. So we would get a third space. We would get a third resource. So we would free up about a third of the resources and about half the inventory. Those are really the metrics. And when I say those things to people today, they kind of look at me like that can't really be true. Um, but in real life, it's real. I've seen it really happen in real life. So uh, it's really that conundrum of uh, you say it and I believe that you saw it, but I don't know if it'll work here. And that's kind of the mentality. So uh, through those Kaikakus and really ma making major changes, um, saw huge reductions. Again, days of manufacture, being able to build multiple products on multiple lines, mixed models, high volume, high velocity, doing high variation quickly a lot less inventory, um, helps our quality because now we don't, when we have a quality problem, we don't have to purge the inventory. We don't have to find all the parts. We don't have to do a huge um, exercise to find it. And then really space. Uh, and then in the end, this is really a growth strategy. And that's probably the, probably the biggest misnomer or the misunderstanding around the Toyota production system or as we put it into the cost out category. This is a cost reduction initiative. And, and when I hear that, that, that really is everything it's not. Uh, by saying it's a cost out uh, exercise is really missing the point. It's really a growth strategy. Uh, companies that do uh, the Toyota production system successfully are growing faster than any other companies in the world. And that I used to sell that idea. I don't sell that idea anymore. It's, that's a fact. The question is, do we have the intestinal fortitude to do it? Uh, and that's really... Um, that's really the challenge that I, I put out there. All right. Last question for you, Steve. Uh, I know you've mentioned this on the podcast, but just to formalize it here, you teach this material and business model to professionals. And uh, over the last seven to eight years, you've taught thousands um, in different four-day lean boot camps. Now, I know I know you're moving away from lean a little bit, but the the methodologies um, remain. And it's, it's that same kind of uh, educational platform to familiarize people with the uh, key business strategies and mindset changes that need to happen to really achieve something like the Toyota production system. Uh, what's your perspective on getting this to not only the established manufacturing workforce, but also young people entering the industry, uh, you know, really helping them come into their career already having this mindset instead of having to unlearn and relearn? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I so of course I'm getting older, and as I get older, and as I was taught by you know Jim Womack when he came to the Kaikaku event in Everett, Washington, 2015, he basically said, "You guys have a torch, uh, take the torch and carry it on." So really, uh, to to that point, I've been recently spending a lot of time trying to think about and trying to really engage 
how do we engage the young people? So uh, how do we connect with the technical uh, colleges? How do we connect with the engineering colleges? How do we connect with um, high schoolers and the uh, STEM programs and the all the, uh, if you look and do any research in systems thinking, uh, the whole idea of systems thinking, they're trying to really move down into uh, the education world is really starting to get people to start thinking about systems and and how that works. So I've I've worked with the Manufacturers Association of Central New York, uh, MACNI, trying to get this class, uh, this lean boot camp, uh, uh, available to those people. Not only the professionals, but also the colleges. My daughter is at a local uh, university, and her boyfriend is a is in a business class. And I was talking to him about this uh, this lean boot camp, and and you know the first time they hear these or see these concepts shouldn't it shouldn't be from me when after they've been at work and uh, what i've seen is uh i am working with a young gentleman that uh, went to uh, rit and he comes into work and he's a new me and he's uh has lots of energy and he's off there doing a lot of work and now he's goes through this boot camp and he's like wow if i had real if i'd have had this stuff you know a couple years ago i wouldn't have changed my careers but i would have go i would go into my career and my my first tasks would be a lot different um, so really, how do we get those people coming out with these concepts? So, um, you know, really driving those things home. So the first time they're seeing this stuff, if they're seeing it from me, it's great that they're seeing it. I mean, I'm educating people that have been in the workforce for four, 30, 40 years. I'm, I'm educating people that have been in the workforce for months. So there's a full range. I'm actually doing one of these boot camps next week. So there'll be a diverse range of people in there. And for some people, it's the first time seeing it. And maybe they've been working for 10 or 15 years. That's great. And if you can take something away from it and do it, that's great. But to me, really getting to those lower levels and really getting to uh, the universities or the high schools, really getting, and the simulation that we do in the, the Toyo, in the, the Lean boot camp is actually, it takes up a thousand square feet. It's a, it's a very large simulation. It has movable carts and racks and it has big it has a press to press parts it's it's very lifelike and tactile and it does it does do really well to move people's paradigms and they have to really solve the problem uh hands-on and it's it's world-class uh training material uh it's been taught as again i probably taught two thousand people this class in the past uh seven years um, so that's really where the initial learning of this goes, but then it's really in the application. That's just one thing is to learn the basics and become aware. The next thing is how do we then apply this in real life? Um, but I think really making awareness up front is really key. So, uh, we'll continue to work on that and hope, uh, people reach out and ask for it and, uh, and make it, and we'll make it available to people as we go forward. All right. This has been an incredible conversation. Steve Darderis, thank you so much for your insights breaking down TPS, the Toyota production system, its origin, its methodologies, its application, and why it's so critical to be bringing this to a next generation of manufacturing professionals. Again, we've been chatting with Steve Darderis. He's Director of Continuous Improvement for Hillrom. Steve, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Fourth Revolution, a Bartell podcast. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to bartellmachinery.com. Right on our front page, you'll see the latest episode of The Fourth Revolution podcast, as well as some links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest of our episodes. Head to our website for some more great content, as well as 
uh, deep dives into Bartel machineries, solutions, and products. If you like what you heard, make sure you find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you're listening to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. <laughs>